Good morning, everybody. So um, just for those of you that don't know me, uh, my name's Georgia. Uh, I am the curate at um, St. James by the Park in Shirley in Southampton. And if you're not sure what a curate is, basically they're an assistant vicar. Um, so um, I assist um, Dan, our vicar, uh, with leading our church over in Shirley. Um, I'm mum to two adult boys, um, and uh, my passion, I suppose, I have several passions, but one of my huge passions is sharing God's word and reading God's word and studying God's word. So I'm delighted to be here this morning. Um, It's really good to be able to um, speak out that psalm together, wasn't it? I think that's really appropriate because, of course, the psalms are designed for public worship. They are designed um, almost as a hymn book. They are for us to praise God and worship God with. Uh, And so it's really appropriate when we speak them out. Um, I guess we could have sung it. Um, um, I haven't got a particularly tuneful voice, uh, so I wouldn't like to lead you in that. But definitely, they are designed to be sung. Now, I want to ask a question to think about, and we might come back to it at the end. If someone asked you to describe God to them, what adjectives would you use to describe him with? What would you do? How would you do that? And it's an important question to ask ourselves because we're told in Scripture to be ready to give a reason for our faith whenever we're asked for it. And I think nowadays that although many of us, many of us older people, were brought up with a broadly Christian culture, many younger people in our culture today have not been brought up with that Christian background. So we're going from a much lower bar. For many people, there is no inherent belief in a God at all. So how do you explain God to those who have no concept of who God is at all. Now, I love to read the scriptures, but I also love to share my faith with others. I'm privileged to be a chaplain in a local sick form college, as well as serving in my church. And so I probably have more opportunities than most to share my faith with others. And people will often ask me about that inevitably because of my job. And one of my go-to is to go to creation, which is what this psalm starts with. I say, you don't believe in a God? Just look around you. Just look at the world around you. Think about the intricate designs. Just look at a daisy, for instance. I was listening to David Attenborough the other day talking about daisies. That Each one is uniquely different to another. Isn't that incredible? You think of a lawn with all those daisies on each one. God has taken the trouble to design differently. Each snowflake is subtly different. How incredible. Many people think that's random. I find that harder to believe than to believe in a creator who has deliberately designed it. So the psalm begins 
with um, those famous words. I think for many people, these are famous words in a hymn, aren't they? The heavens are telling of the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. And in effect, the psalm, this psalm written by David, is saying, just look. You can't help but see God in the makeup of the world around you. How can you miss it when you look around you? And what David is saying in these first verses, the first six verses of this psalm, is that actually we can know something of the nature of God simply by looking around us. I don't know about you, but when I'm out in the New Forest or if I'm on a beach, often that's a time when I feel closer to God. If I'm in a busy town uh, with lots going on, it's harder to sense God's presence. But when I'm out for a lovely walk in the forest or I'm walking along the beach in the early evening, somehow it's much easier to sense God's presence. And there's a to that. God is speaking through nature to us. It says that day to day, verse 2 says, pours forth speech. Night to night declares knowledge. Day and night are telling us something about God's nature. Now, I don't know about you, but when I woke up this morning, I didn't think, oh, I hope there's going to be a day. And if you went to bed last night, did you think, oh, I hope it's going to be nighttime? No. We don't think like that, do we? Because we know that they're fixed points in our world. Tomorrow there'll be a day. Tonight there'll be a night. And that tells us something about God's nature, doesn't it? God, just like day and night, is completely dependable and reliable. Just as you don't have to think, is it going to be a day tomorrow? Are we going to have a day tomorrow? Is it going to be night tonight? God is utterly reliable. So David is saying we can know God's nature through the world around us. It's why for many of us, going out, I often sit in my garden first thing and have my quiet time there because there's something about looking around at the flowers and the trees and thinking, God, my God created these. Paul goes even further than David. So in the New Testament, in his uh, letter to the Romans, Paul, the apostle, says this, He talks about people that have rejected God, that have said that there is no God. So we're sort of back to where we started. He says this in Romans 1. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made or created, so that men are without excuse. So Paul tells us that there is no excuse for not believing in God, because we can see around us what God has created. Back to our psalm. Psalm um, verse 3 says this, Their voice 
uh, sorry, there is no speech, there are no words, their voice is not heard yet. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. There is no speech or words, yet their voice goes out through all the earth. So yes, I have yet to meet a speaking tree or a singing flower, except in Disney cartoons. Yet, just to look at the design of a flower, the texture of a tree and its produce and the way it grows. If you're a gardener like me, you will always wonder when I plant a seed in the spring, I am always in awe when it grows into a lovely plant in the summer. God is a creative God. Isn't that amazing? And creation speaks to us of our creator. It may not have a literal voice, and yet it speaks to us of God. David goes on to describe the sun in verses 5 and 6, and its course through the sky. That nothing is hid from its heat. Now, we know about that, don't we, over the last week or so. Uh, Some of us like the heat, some of us not so much, but I think 40 degrees heat for most of us was a bit too much, wasn't it? Yet, what does the sun tell us about God? It tells us that we have a God who is powerful. The sun is a life generator. If we didn't have the sun, our planet would not exist. We would not exist. It is life-giving. So much of creation tells us about the nature of its creator. Think about a painting. That tells us something about the painter who has painted it. When you go into someone's house, the way they've decorated their house tells you something about the people in that house who live there. When you see a beautiful building, it tells you something of the architect. And so we can know something of God from the world around us. Can we know everything about God from the world around us? David suggests no, not everything. So what's interesting about this um, psalm is the first six verses look at creation. The second half of the psalm, so from 7 to verse 14, looks at God's word. So in essence, we're looking at God's world and God's word. God's world and God's word. And in the psalm, um, the Hebrew, which is what this was originally written in, and of course we are always reading it in translation, uh, but sometimes it's really helpful to go back to the original language. The word for God in the first half of this psalm is different to the word for God in the second half of this psalm. So in the first six verses, David uses the word El, for God. Now the Hebrew word El, E-L, just means God. It's a sort of generic term for God. Often in the Old Testament it's used alongside other words to describe God. So you may have heard of El Shaddai, for instance, God Almighty. Emmanuel, God with us. So in this first half it just talks generically about God. So in a sense it 
David is saying, yes, we can know something of the nature of God, but not fully be in relationship with God. In the second half, he uses the word Jehovah or Yahweh. Now that's the word for the God of relationship, the God of the covenant, the Lord of promise. The Lord who wants to have relationship with you and I. Yes, we can know God from creation, but so much more we can know and be in relationship with God by knowing his word. Now, David, uh, for David, the word of God was more condensed than it is for us. We're very fortunate. Our Bibles contain both the Old Testament and the New Testament. For David, uh, God's word would have been contained in the Torah, uh, which was the first five books of the Old Testament. He would have had some of the Psalms, presumably some of his own, as well as some of the earlier ones. He would have had some of the history books, such as Joshua as well. But he wouldn't have the breadth of scripture that we are fortunate to have. And yet for David... And he uses different words here for the scriptures. And he uses the word law, commandments, um, ordinances, precepts. There's all sorts of words he uses. But in essence, David is saying it's God's word that is going to draw us even closer into relationship with God and knowing him better. Now, if I'd read David's description of God's word in an Amazon review, for instance, or a book review, I think this is a must-read. Some of the words he uses in this um, psalm for God's word are the following. He says it's perfect, reviving. I think we, we read out refreshing. It is sure, certain. You can rely on it. It's right. It is rejoicing. It's enduring. It's true. It's more to be desired than gold, even fine gold. Now think about David. David was a king. He had his fill of gold. He would have had treasure houses of gold. Yet for David, God's word is more precious than that gold. It's the most precious thing he possessed. It's sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Do we consider God's word as precious as David did? Do you love to read God's word? Or is it sometimes a chore? Is it sometimes something that you think, oh, It's just hard work sometimes. I don't really understand it. I've been reading um, the new book by Pete Grieg. Some of you may have come across this, How to Hear God. I don't know if anybody else is reading it. I do recommend it. It's a very good book. And in it, he um, quotes a statistic. Now, I haven't researched this statistic, but I'm going to trust that he will have researched it. He wouldn't have put it in the book otherwise. But I came across this interesting statistic and there was a, um, there was a survey done of 40,000 people, so it's a fair, it's a fair um, survey, of between the ages of 8 and 80. And it was a survey into reading the Bible. 
And these people were asked how often they read the Bible and what effect it had on them. And out of this survey came um, the following. If you read the Bible once a week, it has very little effect on your lifestyle and your thought patterns. Read the Bible two to three times a week, mm, negligible. Read the Bible four times or more a week, and that begins to have an effect on your mental health, on your spiritual health, on your lifestyle. And I thought that's a great challenge, actually. So if you don't take anything else away this morning, take that away and think, okay, over the summer, how often you read your Bible, I'm going to do it four or more times. I'm going to see if that survey's true. I'm going to take that and I'm going to do that. And for some people, I know scripture can be really hard. I love it. I love delving into it. Um, If you find it hard, talk to some of your leaders. Say, you know, are there there some books I could kind of read alongside it? Because this is quite difficult, especially if you're reading some of the trickier passages. But I'd encourage you to really delve into God's word. If David, the king of a vast empire, wealthy beyond our imagining, thought that God's word was more precious than anything else he owned. I think it's worth spending time on. Now, David says a little bit more. He gives all these descriptors of God's word, but he also says they have a real effect on his life, which is what we've just been talking about. And I'm going to talk about two elements. One is the word of God convicts, brings conviction. And the other thing it does is it creates. So it convicts and it creates. David says this in verses 11 to 13. Moreover, by them, that's God's word, is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can detect their errors? Clear me from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from the insolent. Other versions talk about willful thoughts. Um, There are several different proud thoughts. Keep back your servant from these. Do not let them have dominion or power over me. Then shall I be blameless and innocent of great transgression. We don't like in this culture being wrong, do we? I think we've witnessed that a lot lately in our politicians Uh, in our world in general. We do not like admitting when we've done something wrong. And we definitely don't like saying we're sorry because it is admitting weakness. As Christians, we need to be counter-cultural. We need to welcome confessing to wrongdoing and welcome saying sorry. Because we live in this world, we're often infected by those attitudes, aren't we? We feel it's really difficult to admit when we're wrong. And yet, if we're to grow as Christians, we've got to get used to doing that. We've got to get used to confessing our sins and allowing God to shine a light into those dark areas, as David said, the hidden bits, the bits where we're not even aware that we're doing or thinking things wrong. 
There's often a lot of stuff goes on in our psychology and the way that we think and our thought patterns that we have no idea they're contrary to what God wants in our lives. And reading God's word is going to do that. That's going to open up. That's going to be a light. Talks in scripture about the word of God being a lamp or a light because it reveals things. So let's allow God's word to do that. David, of all people, knew what this was like, didn't he? David had committed some pretty dire sins. He'd had a man killed because he wanted to marry his wife. Several of the uh, Ten Commandments broken in one foul swoop, I'd say there. David knew what it was like to confess wrongdoing. But he also knew what it was like to be forgiven. He may not have known Jesus, yet he looked towards a saviour. He knew a God of forgiveness. And we have Jesus, don't we? We don't have to live with that sin and wrongdoing. We can come to the cross and we can ask Jesus to forgive us. Jesus died on that cross. He took our sins on himself so that we could know freedom from sin. Finally, we're back to creation. The word of God is creative, isn't it? If you go right back to the beginning of the Old Testament, what does God say? God said, let there be light, and there was light. God's word is creative. It brings things into being. So if we want to grow as Christians, we need both the world around us to be enjoying the world around us, seeing how that expresses God and being thankful to God for that. But we also need his word to draw us into deeper relationship with God, to deal with the sin that so often is a barrier between us knowing God better and growing in our faith. God wants to use his word to grow us. Amen.